Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn, and today more than ever before, companies, brands, and their partners need to stand for something beyond the bottom line. I've created this program to provide insights and ideas to share with you so that you can apply them to your work the very next day. The goal here is to up-level your purpose and to benefit companies and society. So please join us. Today's going to be one of my favorite podcasts um, in the last two years. Joining me is the founder of The Unreasonable Group, Daniel Epstein. And their name says there's a really different way of addressing solutions to some of the world's biggest problems. What makes Unreasonable different? Well, they're driven by a sense of impatience when it comes to putting a dent on the world's toughest challenges. To this end, rather than working with entrepreneurs at the seed and early stages of their development, like accelerators and incubators, at Unreasonable, they've found that the best approach to support growth stage entrepreneurs who are already wielding the most impactful solutions of our times. Today, they have a community of over 200 fellows, that's companies, but they call the CEO fellows, the CEOs, that are positively impacting hundreds of millions of people in more than 180 countries around the globe. They focus simply on scaling what works. So join me on this journey with Daniel. It is one that is going to open your eyes wide And it's going to just fill you with thinking of opportunity and the potential of partnerships. This is a great two-part conversation. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you, Carol. And your introduction is far too kind, Uh, but I am very excited to be here with you as well. Super. So let me now embarrass you a little bit more. <laughs> more? <Yeah. laughs> because I, I love accelerator programs, but yeah. um, Unreasonable is more than an accelerator program. And, you know, why is it called Unreasonable? Well, on their website, there's this wonderful quote from George Bernard Shaw that says, the unreasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persist in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man and woman. So what does the unreasonable group do? Great question. Well, they operate, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm told you I'm going to embarrass you, <laughs> immersive programs for growth stage entrepreneurs, offering solutions to seemingly intractable challenges. And you'll find all over their website, they call them BF. P's big fucking problems. And we're going to hear about how they approach them. There are also, there are more. 
They're a multimedia company, a private global network, and an investment firm. And what they do, which just totally warms my heart and my superhuman power of creating unlikely partnerships, is that they do those. They introduce those. They have them working with mentors and companies, um, and they're working with some of the world's largest institutions and most admired brands. And, and I remember, Daniel, the last time we chatted when I was in Boulder, which had to be, I think, three or four years ago, you were talking about Barclays. And I am so proud. I want you to talk about the program that you have developed with Barclays down the road. So right before we get into our conversation, the company has amazing values. And I want you to talk about those values because it attracts so many special people from around the world to you. And then the other thing I love about you and one of your values, which I think is great, it's like no assholes. Yay. I love that. And then you have great energy and you work incredibly hard, you know, show up and keep going forward. But then your last value, which is really important today, you say family and health first, which is that if you're not healthy and if your family's got an important something you have to do, drop what you're doing and go serve it. So, Daniel, with that crazy long introduction, um, I want to welcome you again to the show. And first, tell me a little bit about Daniel Epstein and how you became to be so unreasonable. Yeah, I, I think I was <laughs> I was born that way uh, in some ways. But uh, let me uh, just start by saying you know, thank you, Carol, for the opportunity and to all the listeners who are going to lend us their you know, ears and minds and hopefully hearts uh, for the duration of this podcast. I'm just grateful to be here. You know, it's it's just interesting. I think I was may- maybe born with a little bit of a screw loose. I am, and then that was, <laughs> you know, that was probably fostered with good parenting. I uh, but I have uh, two older brothers. I am, uh, and um, I think that um, the the last, the youngest child, kind of I uh, pattern uh, emerged, which is pretty typical in the sense that my parents were really strict with my first brother. I and had a lot of rules, and um, second brother still pretty you know reasonably strict. And I think by the time they got to the third son, they were basically <laughs> tired, and they just said, "Do whatever you want, just don't kill yourself." <laughs> um, That's so funny. And, That's and so um, I was given a long leash. I'm and I you know part of that was I am yes horsing around as a kid, but the other part is. Um, looking at the world, being able to question a lot, a lot of what I see. And when, when I went to university, I studied philosophy. I am, <laughs> I remember my parents giving me a long leash on that because they're all in the medical profession and thought, you know, what are you going to do with a philosophy degree? But for me, I am, I dropped out of business school and studied philosophy um, because I realized that philosophy was teaching me how to think and business school was teaching me what to think. And those were very different things. One gave me energy and one just stole it away mm, from me. Interesting. So you know, a degree in philosophy just caused me to like continue this curiosity and this questioning of why. And when, and when you look at the status quo of world, where the world is today, I think if we don't question it, I, we're, we're in a huge heap of trouble. I had that uh, what we need to be doing is reimagining, deconstructing it and figuring out how do we create a more just society uh, yeah, at large. I am, and so for me, uh, the bug actually came first year in university. I, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, which is a whole different thing. Um, but I remember going around and people asking you, when you're 18 years old, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'd say, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And they'd say, great. <laughs> cool. You know, what's your idea? 
and, and I had none. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <and so laughs> That's I, a problem. <laughs> want to be right? Uh, you know, a charlatan in disguise, and I'm. Um, it I wasn't. I just had a pivotal moment with my journal one evening. Um, first year of university, I had all these business ideas. None of them were sticking. Uh, and I realized in hindsight, I was asking myself the wrong question, which is what company do I want to start versus why? Right? Mm. I had, I'm, when I was with the journal this one evening, I'm, I put on my 18-year-old philosopher's hat. And I said, well, what do all entrepreneurs have in common? And so I did a if-then statement. So I said, well, all entrepreneurs design solutions to problem sets. And I wrote on the next line in my journal, I can choose the nature of the problem sets I want to solve. Mm. And I wrote on the last line, well, therefore, I'm only going to work on problem sets worthy of my life's work. Uh, and it was, it was fabulous, just a, you know, a theoretical moment. But the, the thing that we know, you know, is that entrepreneurship is hard, right? The only thing I knew when I was 18 is that the odds are stacked against you that, you know, nine out of 10 companies in the U S don't exist five years after formation. I, and I figured if I'm going to leverage my sleep reputation, relationships, equity into starting a company, you know, why not start something that if we succeed, we bend history in the right direction because we chose to solve a hard problem right? It's just like, why wouldn't you? I just don't understand, you know? And so that catapulted me down uh, yeah, a path that eventually led to unreasonable. I am in that I, I didn't have a community of fellow entrepreneurs who kind of spoke the same language, right? Who wanted to solve these BFPs, who wanted to put a dent you know, on these impossibly hard problems, but wanted to use for-profit business to do it. I am and genesis of unreasonable was a selfish desire to seek refuge amongst fellow misfit entrepreneurs, <laughs> you know, just to have a community where right. we could say, you know what, maybe we can, let's go after it. And that, that was really the start. And, and then you've been in Boulder how long? I've been in Boulder since university. So I am, I guess, uh, 17 years now. Okay. So, so it really, it, 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 you know, you've got the essence and you've got the energy um, in the place as yeah, well that, that helped so. you very much like Boston when I was just getting out of college and, you know, it's kind of an entrepreneurial hub, which, totally which I fed off. Yeah. That, well, that's and you great. know, Carol, just one, one comment on that. Yeah. I, I grew up in a really small town. Um, we had about 2000 people when I was growing up there in Washington. And I'm, um, so I was looking at university in Boston and New York and other places. And, um, but when I came out to Boulder, what the startup community here does have a lot of power. It's like shocking for how small it is. It packs a punch. Um, but what I loved about the community here is, it's so supportive that um, it's not it's not competitive in the same way that um, I find my time in like the Bay Area can be. Where if you're an entrepreneur, you know you're in the Bay Area, you maybe maybe you raise a fifty million dollars Series B round, and instead of saying, "Oh my God, that's so awesome," the first question is, "Well, who, who was your lead? What were the terms? You know, what was it? You know?" And, and in Boulder, there's this small town pride where it's like, "Well, if a company's really successful here, we all benefit because the community, uh, you know, shares in kind of that ownership and feel." And so. Um, um, yeah, I've been here ever since and, and just really love the community. Um, and it, yeah, yes, there's a lot of intelligence, but there's also just a lot of care here. A lot of secret sauce. Yeah, And, so. you know, that contributes to a lot of the food at startups, but but other totally. things. So talk, share with our listeners the projection from Institute to the to the group because I think that the group has gotten very large. And, and I would like people who are listening are going to say, ooh, I want to be part of that. And so as we have this conversation, I want them to understand where they might fit in. If they have an idea, they have a client, they want to be a partnership. Unreasonable Institute was the start. Um, and we, we began as a nonprofit. Uh, we existed to support uh, early stage 
ecosystem for entrepreneurs trying to profitably impact at least a million lives each. They were trying to launch new companies though. Um, and, and what happened yeah, after running the Institute for I think the first three years, um, I just really began to believe that um, when it comes to trying to solve these tough problems, that impatience is a virtue. Uh, that we can't do it fast enough. And so the question was, well, how might we put a dent on these global issues quit more quickly? And the realization was scale. And so the trans transformation and reasonable institute to a reasonable group was working from early stage startups to growth stage uh, private companies. Uh, in essence, you know, you might be bringing clean drinking water to uh, two million people, and it's profitable. Our question is, okay, how do we take it to two hundred million people faster? I am, uh, and so that. That was really the shift. I was going into growth stage companies and trying to, I, you know, we don't put out a call for applications for entrepreneurs. I, we scour the globe, we handpick and we privately invite those we believe are best positioned to solve you know, one of these BFPs, be that in healthcare and education, renewable energy, future of food. Yeah, that, that was the primary shift. I, and for us, you know, why group I, in, in terms of name? Yeah, part of it is, what do we do? And we can get more into it. But I say at the end of the day, we, we create community. Like if I were to put it into you know, one word, we create community between entrepreneurs, investors, and institutions to profitably solve you know, these BFPs. I am, and, and so, but the, the idea that people talk about competitive advantage, right? What about collaborative advantage? Like that's our core belief. And so the concept of being a group or community is just really at the heart of what we do and why we exist. So talk a little bit about your favorite values because you're beginning to, to, to talk about them. You talk about collaboration versus competition. And I think that the way you're structured and the way that you seek out the entrepreneurs, that they have to fit through these obstacles, these jumps um, to fit in. But, they're, but they have obviously the results prove that the values are working. In terms of our values, which ones are the favorite? Um, <laughs> that's a really hard question. I, I mean, know. all I your do, children are gorgeous. <laughs> I do appreciate. I uh, I do appreciate no assholes uh, as as just a core value. And you know, I mean, let, to be more candid on that one, you know, part of it's fun to say and it's catchy. But um, the <laughs> truth is, is that even even great people can be an asshole at different times. And what we're really saying is, don't be an ass. Like, come in to this community with a uh, you kind of open-hearted, transparent, collaborative, give first mentality. And you're going to get more out of this than anything you've been a part of. Um, and so I am, I do think that value is important. You know, we, we think there's a fine line between arrogance and confidence. I am and that actually what we're looking for in the entrepreneurs we support uh, is uh, this paradoxical mix of confidence and humility, right? Uh, they have, a, I mean, they have to have confidence. You have to have insane confidence to think that you can, you know, feed 200 million people, right? Or that you can reverse climate change through carbon sequestration and recycle it into jet fuel. Like you have to have a lot of belief and confidence, but the humility is an acknowledgement that you can't do it on your own, that there's no single panacea solution for any of these issues, that the greatness of what you achieve will be through the greatness of your teams and the strength of your relationships. Um, and so um, the no assholes basically means we don't, we don't work with people who are arrogant, um, but we do seek out people who are confident and humble. Um, yeah, I think the, the value are the, the one we have some fun with, which is family and health first, which is at the end of the manifesto. Um, but that it's a nice thing to say when it's put in practice, it's really powerful. 
you know, I think with all of our values, um, our question is, uh, you know, not so much just what are the values, but how do they show up in time and space, right? Uh, and how do we have, what are our policies? What's our nomenclature? Um, you know, our habits that will enforce them. I am, and how do we, you know, deeply encourage them? And uh, that one's important. Uh, family and health first. Uh, you know, we really do believe if, if anybody gets sick or anything happens to their family, they do drop everything. I am, and uh, the team will cover. I am, you know, we have at least in the in the U.S. by standards, I think, um, you know, pretty fair uh, paternity and maternity leave. It's four months fully paid for for both. I am. We have a. Uh, a seven-year sabbatical policy. I'm seventh year of work in our reasonable. Um, it's six-month sabbatical. I'm fully paid. I am actually that's not true. Three months are paid. The second three months are half paid. Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> just correcting that. Right. But but there's but there's there's a lot of places like if if we went through all of the values, I could give you three or four examples of how we try to have them show up in time and space, and so thereby we're accountable to them. Okay, but the and and you know these values and I you know climb the right mountain, no bullshit, learn always, magic's in the details. Why are those values so important to the success of what you've created and the outcomes? Great point. You know, I think that um, in my mind, culture is um, much more powerful than strategy, and our values are at the root of our culture. The, the analogy I like, I like to use is from one of our mentors, um, George Kemble, who's the founder of the D School at Stanford, the Center for Innovation. He's just so excellent at creating culture, um, and a culture in particular of creativity and kind of creative liberation. And I asked him, so how do you scale that? Like, how do you go, you know, team of five to a team of 50 to a team of 5,000 to like Accenture 500,000 people? Like, how do you possibly keep that kind of sense of culture alive. And, and, he, and he gave me an analogy that, that we really live by, which is he talked about a school of fish. <laughs> he said, look, if there's, you know, if you look at a school of fish, you, there might be one with 50,000 fish. And they're, they're moving together in this uh, almost emergent kind of beautiful unity, right? And if you ever watch those videos, you'll see it. Uh, and he asked me, he said, well, how do you think that works? Do you think, do you, do you think there's a CEO fish in the middle of all those fish yelling at him? <laughs> go up, go down, move left, move oh, right. Left, like, no. right, yes. right? What, what it comes down to is beliefs and behaviors at the individual fish level. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, think about it. Let's pretend that you had three localized rules or behaviors for the individuals. The first one, fish, right? The first one is swim as closely as possible to the fish next to you. The second one is if you see something dangerous, swim away from it. And the third one is if you see food, swim towards it. All of a sudden, it doesn't matter if you have five fish or 50,000, they're going to you know, move together in this emergent creativity. And so for us, th those are like our policies, our traditions, our habits, but they're rooted in our values, right? And so I think our values, um, I, I think that's how we'll scale is, is, is the truth. Well, you certainly have scaled already. Let's take a break and find out what else is happening besides this podcast that you may want to know about. Today's In the Know is about Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, the world's largest asset management company with over I think it's close to 8 trillion assets under management. In his letter, I'm going to read a few parts of it today because it's stunning. Larry Fink's letter 
is like a shot heard round the world. In 2019, he talked about that every company must have a purpose if it is to achieve its fullest potential. Well, now he's focusing on climate change. But let's listen to a bit about his letter. BlackRock is a fiduciary to our clients, helping them invest for long-term goals. Most of the money we manage is for retirement, for individuals and pension beneficiaries like teachers, firefighters, doctors, business people, and many others. It is their money we manage, not our own. The trust our clients place in us and our role as the link between our clients and the companies they invest in gives us a great responsibility to advocate, to advocate on their behalf. This is why I write to you each year, he says, seeking to highlight issues that are pivotal to creating durable value. Issues such as capital management, long-term strategy, purpose, and climate change. Then he goes on to talk about the pandemic, a pandemic that has enveloped the entire globe and changed it permanently. Well, we all know of the dark times during the past year. But he also says, despite the darkness of the past 12 months, there have been signs of hope, including companies that have worked to serve their stakeholders with courage and conviction. We saw businesses rapidly innovate to keep food and goods flowing during lockdowns. Companies have stepped up to support nonprofits serving those in need. In one of the greatest triumphs of modern science, multiple vaccines were developed in record time. Many companies also responded to calls for racial equity, although much work remains to deliver on these commitments. And strikingly, amid all of the disruption of 2020, businesses moved forcefully to confront climate risk. We are all in this together, he says, and climate risk is now the biggest challenge in front of us. He also talked about how investors in mutual funds and ETFs are now rapidly moving into sustainable assets. There was a 96% increase over the whole of 2019. And he says, I believe this is the beginning of a long but rapidly accelerating transition, one that will unfold over many years and reshape asset prices of every type. We know that climate risk is an investment risk, but we also believe the climate transition presents a historic investment opportunity. I'm glued to CNN these days, and I was really taken aback when uh, then-President-elect Biden was introducing his cabinet that would focus on climate. I was thrilled to see that he appointed uh, John Kerry, former Secretary of State, to be his climate envoy, his voice heard around the world. And I'll share with you a little-known fact that's a personal one, that when I was on John Kerry's presidential fundraising committee many years ago, at a snowy winter breakfast, um, I met one of my colleagues there who uh, introduced me ultimately to the man that I was to marry, my husband, Harry Silverman. So I have a, a lot of fondness for John Kerry. 
and he almost attended my wedding. Almost, but not quite. Anyway, getting back to In the Know. So I am thrilled that Larry Fink, in his letter this year, is focusing on climate. He's focusing on and really challenging um, the companies that they are investing in to up their game substantially in all their climate actions. And you're going to hear a lot this year about net zero, net zero, net zero goals. So let's go back to unreasonable and our conversation with Daniel, because you're going to hear about their pre-public companies, but they're companies that are dealing, many of them, with climate change in the most profound manners and ideas. get really specific about partnerships. And I would love to hear about the Barclays partnership. It's been a long time. You have your own, I think, cut at it. It's called, I think, Unreasonable Impact. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I've watched some of those videos. And so, because I think people are going, yeah, I want to hear more. How does this really work? So share that with us. Well, it's a good point. So one thing to acknowledge that, you know, 247 CEOs that we support through the Unreasonable Fellowship, we, we don't charge them anything. Um, and in fact, we cover their costs and we'll support them for life uh, so long as they continue to run an impactful organization. Um, so then how do we survive is an important question to answer. And it's through, you know, the courage of the partners that we align with. And Barclays is is our um, you know, largest kind of cornerstone partner. I'm, I, together, um, yeah, we, we kickstarted an initiative called Unreasonable Impact. And the focus is on scaling up growth stage companies in the green economy that are rapidly creating jobs. Um, and so more, more particular, green economy basically means um, work with companies where the better the business does, the healthier the planet is. So that can be you know, sustainable transportation. Um, you could be looking at um, uh, clean air. You could be looking at drinking water, food production, whatever that might be. Um, obviously, energy, renewable energy. Um, but the second side is job creation. We want it aligned with companies that are positioned to create at least 500 jobs in five years from bringing them into the fellowship. The first thing to acknowledge is when we teamed up with Barclays, I thought that that was an odd theme um, for a bank because um, I would have thought that we would have worked on uh, global financial inclusion. That would be something uh, that would make sense to me. And I, and I remember sitting with the leadership at Barclays and basically telling them, look, if, if this is just sponsorship, that's why you're doing this. We're not going to touch it because sponsorship is AstroTurf. Like every, everybody knows that that's not real, right? I, I said, so like, tell me why does the bank, the core bank of Barclays care about green and care about jobs? And you know, in essence, their leadership said, look, what, what the green economy is going to do to the world is in essence, an analogy is like the internet. Um, it will permeate every industry, every sector, soon to be every geography. The future of business will be green. Barclays knows that. They're enlightened enough to realize that. And they said, we need to be the premier green bank. Um, and so the second thing is, you know, if you're going to create 500 jobs in five years as a, as a company, um, well, you're probably going to need a bank as a partner. Um, and we'd love to work with you to help scale those efforts because their belief was that the entrepreneurs we were working with are, you know, quote unquote, the, the future titans of industry. I am, and, and they want to be at the forefront of helping them early. So long story short, uh, we've been in partnership. We had a three-year partnership. It got extended to seven years. Um, 
And we're looking at, um, you know, more so there. But I think what's exciting is together, you know, we've, we've helped uh, over 100 companies, um, specifically in the Asia Pacific region, Europe, and then across the Americas. Um, they're all tackling climate change directly with profit and they're creating um, you know, jobs. But at the same time that we're helping this top down, or sorry, the bottom up innovation, scale entrepreneurial solutions that work, we're also seeing a magnificent shift in our partners towards more sustainable practices and their core function. So Barclays launched the first new coverage group in their investment bank in 70 years. And it's focused specifically on uh, environmental, you know, we call them green companies um, that are for the betterment of the planet. They've changed their investment thesis of their kind of off balance sheet investing uh, to move off of in essence fossil fuels to, to renewables. And what they're also doing now is they're helping their clients you know, the biggest energy companies in the world transition more quickly to sustainable practices by connecting them to the entrepreneurs that we're supporting them who can show them you know, a profitable future around sustainability. And so they're a delight to work with, um, but also we're, we're seeing real change happen um, between our organizations, which has been phenomenal. That, that's an amazing story because you started out, I love when you say sponsorship equals AstroTurf, and I'm going to use that. Um, and I, I remember when we had that breakfast and you were saying, well, we're trying to do this. And I think, is it, isn't it financial inclusion? And you were, you know, it was kind of a struggle then. And so what happened? What was the shift where all of a sudden, they saw internally this could change their business, and then and then they pivoted to change their business. Yeah, you know, it, this was driven. Partnership comes out of the the citizenship team uh, at Barclays is where, where the genesis was, and their goal was to I'm. Um, not do what banks have typically done in the past, which is make a ton of money somewhere and then, and then you know, donate that to, to very worthy organizations. But what they wanted to do is say, how, how do we impact the core of the company? And you know, Deb Goldfarb and Mark Thane um, over at Barclays, I um, really believe that they could. And, and, and uh, the honest truth is that they did. And the way they did it is through you know, the programs that we run. Um, we will bring together typically a cohort of about 13 uh, growth stage CEOs, I am, and then we'll match them with about eighty mentors um, over ah, the you know over okay. a ten-year so time. So you embedded this deep into Barclays. So, so the mentors are the MDs and the C-suite and the board members, yeah, you know, across the global financial institution that is Barclays. And when they get proximate to you know, we'll, we'll give some examples, but to the types of companies that we support, you can't not believe that this is inevitably the future of business. I mean, you you, you did something that I call in a massive way, a walkabout. When yes. we want a company yeah. to get into a social issue, you got to take the senior leadership and go on the ground. But you had them working together. So that is brilliant. So can you give a couple examples yeah. of yeah. some Love of the to. companies that have been mentored and that are flourishing? <laughs> There's so many. Uh, let's go first. Maybe I'll play around with uh, food. So there's a company, um, the entrepreneur there is Mike Zelkin, um, based out of the heartland uh, in the U.S. Um, it's called 80 Acres. Uh, they're looking at the future of agriculture. You know, COVID, just to speak to the timing of you know, this podcast, it's, it's exposed all the issues that we already had. And one of the massive issues is the number of people in this country and around the world who go, go to bed hungry every day. Um, and specifically in densely urban populations. Um, and so 80 Acres is a, it's a vertical farming company. I had, I, so hydroponic farming, uh, aeroponic farming, I, 
they, the reason it's called 80 acres is the very first pilot farm that they set up. It was, uh, it was a city block, um, a small city block. So it was, it was a quarter of an acre was the footprint of the building. And they were able to produce 80 acres worth of crop yield. Uh, so that's 320 times more efficient than traditional agriculture. What would take an acre, what it would take 320 acres they could do in one. That was their first farm. They're now much more efficient than that, um, to be clear. Um, but it's a it's phenomenal business that's bringing you know, affordable food at incredible uh, high quality of nutrition without the need for sunlight or soil. Uh, to populations that never normally had it, uh, and and how much is that? Be how much are they locating in food deserts? Pretty much exclusively. Really, I am like exclusively. I am, and literally, they're actually going to deserts now. They're starting to look at uh, Nigeria and into the Middle East as well um, for expansion. I am, but I, you know, Barclays was a huge partner. They we actually. Um, they just led their Series B round and Barclays invested off their balance sheet to co-lead this round into 80 acres. And now they're talking about, you know, leveraging the scale of the bank globally to move, move the, the farms around the world. Can you imagine telling that story within the bank or for potential recruits? I, I mean, that is so extraordinary and exciting. And I assume and I think I saw some of your videos. So I assume that they have once they get the proof. That they are com- talk a little bit about the communications because I want to know how this cascades within the bank. The banks now rallied behind the partnership, and they've gotten really good at this. So I would say when we started working with Barclays, they did not know, like most global financial institutions, they did not know how to work with st- startups. Even right. if startup <laughs> could be, you made a hundred million dollars. Like it's still a startup, right? I uh, in, in in that world, I'm. Um, and what's happened over the years of you know this partnership and getting closer and closer with these CEOs and understanding their key needs and challenges and then realizing opportunities in the bank, um, they've actually gotten really efficient and really effective at it. And so when you know one of the companies like you know if an unreasonable fellow says, hey, I, I need a yeah I can create plastic out of carbon dioxide, I need a connection into you know X firm, let's say IKEA. Right. Uh, either a reasonable or Barclays, we can get that connection in uh, because, you know, they're, they're a 330 year old institution um, and they have boardroom access into basically every large company on the planet. I, and I, they've been able to now, and I think a big part of that is just trust in our partnership. Um, but there's, they've been able to do it really quickly. I mean, it's, it's mind blowing. The efficiencies that are now there <laughs> versus were there or weren't there. I am, and I think, that, I think to your point, you know, what's interesting about a bank, and, it, and obviously we, we work with other types of multinationals, but a bank in particular is really aligned because they're in the business of scaling companies. That's what they do. And now if we can, you know, if, if the executive of a bank now, Instead of, you know, doing their day job, making a bunch of money, and then maybe donating their time at a soup kitchen, let's say, which is important work. If they realize, oh, my gosh, I can combine what I'm best in the world at, which is helping companies scale with having a massive impact that I can be proud of because of the nature of the companies we're supporting. It just lights people up, to, to your point. So it goes through, I mean, I would say in the citizenship team is still, they're, they're kind of a beating heart of this and like the central nervous system of the bank because they don't live in any one pocket, right? And so like, okay, you need to talk to the commercial bank or the private bank or, you know, the investment bank or the private place. So they cut across. They cut across. So they are allowed to, to get, you know, not go out of the fence, go out of the corral and, and really tie in with others. And pull in whoever needs to be pulled in. You're right. That, that's So how did you find such wisdom at the bank 
Yeah, I blame uh, Mark Thane and Debbie Goldfarb, <laughs> which are individuals. <laughs> All right, well, I, t- I totally, hopefully we can interview them because I think to hear, to hear the other side, I, I think it's you brilliant. Should. I have a question for you. Would you, uh, and this, you don't have to answer it, but is Barclays your exclusive bank customer? I mean, if some other bank came to you, would you work with them or would it be different sets of issues? How do you do that? Yeah, yeah, we we, cert- we certainly could. I am, had, you know, we're in conversations with actually a, a couple different banking institutions. Um, you know, we wouldn't want it to be directly um, competitive by any means. Um, but uh, but Bar- Barclays, um, they're doing this for the right reasons. Yeah, in essence, they said we're not we're not going to um, require exclusivity to sign this partnership because we just want these companies to win. Uh, and at the end of the day, they know that. Look, in any one of our CEOs, if they're going to do an IPO let's say there's a dozen banks that all kind of look the same, right? And Barclays knows they're, they're not going to get any type of exclusive access. But what they do have is the chance to add value and build trust early on. And so when that entrepreneur does want to do an IPO, who are they going to bank with? They're going to go with the one who yeah. were the, you know, start the dance with, of course. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. So this is brilliant and I'm glad we really drill down into it. Um, what about another partnership that you have that's um, perhaps uh, a little different? So uh, I was actually this morning talking um, with, our, with our partner at Accenture. I am, and I, it's actually, it's a three-way partnership. So Fossil, Accenture, and Pearson, they've all come together to launch Unreasonable Future. And uh, Unreasonable Future, you know, what we're looking at has been accelerated by COVID, but it's an acknowledgement that the advanced technologies that exist, yes, they're very, they're exciting in terms of potentially solving key challenges related to healthcare and energy access and you know, zero waste supply chains and so on. Um, they're also scary uh, in terms of what it means for the future of work uh, in particular. And so Unreasonable Future is an initiative where we're looking at um, uh, bleeding edge technologies um, and how they can play a role in creating a more just workforce in, in a digitized world. Uh, and so it's, it's a really interesting combination, though, right? Because you have Accenture, largest consulting firm on the planet, half a million full-time employees, which is an unbelievable number. They think this is the issue that business is going to face and governments are going to go. Yeah, reskilling, upskilling, all of that. Yeah. Lifelong learning. Yep. Pearson is the largest education company on the planet. Right? They know that the future of learning is not going to be analog and in classrooms, we digitize, personalized, and it needs to lead to results, which means work. <laughs> and then and then Fossil is, you know, a phenomenal company that has has a supply chain. Right. Uh, they have a lot of employees that they really care about. And as things get digitized, you have that they bring them along for the journey recently on Upscale. So it's this really cool, unlikely partners. You kind of use that word. Um, and together, we're um, bringing together entrepreneurs that are, are showing you know, what that world is going to look like into the future around education, learning, reskilling, upskilling, job placement, kind of all of that. Okay. So what, so how do you get the three of them to play nice together? What's the secret sauce to that? Because, you know, you get the competitive person. I want that piece. I want that story. I want that entrepreneur. So what's the, how do you make them work nice in the, or the values, you know, like don't show up unless you follow our values. It's, it's what's the intention, right? Okay. Like, do we all care about solving the same global challenge here? And, and the answer there is a resounding yes. And then this is the term I used earlier. It's actually from, from Accenture. I, um, I, Ryan over there um, used it uh, where he said, um, we talk about competitive advantage, but we don't talk about collaborative advantage. 
And what happens when you have these unlikely partners across industries coming together to work with a you know, unique mix of entrepreneurs to solve a key problem? You're going to get breakthroughs that you would never get on your own, right? I, and so um, I also think that you know, m- most all of these companies are led by great people who want to do good in the world. They have a lot of pressures, right? Especially when you're a public company, um, but they, they want to bend history in the right direction and not perpetuate the challenges that we face. And so I think when given a invitation to collaborate, I am, and if we can make that easy, I, then people are, are more than willing to do it. And, you know, we'll even have in our fellowship, we have companies that are head to head as direct competitors as you could possibly be. And yet they're collaborating and working with each other. And it's, and it's not a thing because there's enough poverty in the world for all of us, right? Muhammad Yunus <laughs> said right. that there's, right. you know, there's still 2 billion people who don't have access to electricity. Like there's, these are bigger than just one company. So who came first, Accenture or, or Pearson? Actually, Fossil was the first Fossil one. Fossil came first. Yeah, okay. Fossil came first. And we had been working with Pearson on um, something called the Project Literacy Lab, which was looking at um, entrepreneurial companies that could put a dent on uh, in literacy rates, I'm, and I, I'm, they, they, uh, that's still a big focus for them, but I realized that education's got to morph into lifelong, right, and lead to these types of outcomes in, in the real world that are important in terms of jobs. And so they jumped on, and then uh, Accenture uh, was last to the party, but certainly not least, and it's just been an incredible, I, um, I, it's been an incredible trifecta. I love the trifecta. So my question to you is that, do you have anyone like a me that comes in and says, Daniel, here's a social issue area that we have got to deal with? For example, social determinants of health, health disparities for underserved. And so do you ever work about, around, well, there's some place that we really want to solve. And then you decide, let's pitch the idea to two or three potential partners and start a whole nother unreasonable impact direction? So, yes. Occasionally, um, yes. I will say we really want to really want to work on this problem. Let's try to take it out of the world. But I'm, usually it's inbound. Usually it's yeah, Johnson Johnson reaching out to us and saying, hey, we want to look at universal health care um, and what that's going to look like, and especially in emerging markets, you know, or that's I, no, whoever it might be, Ikea say we want to look at zero waste manufacturing, um, so on and so forth. And so um, typically it's, it's, it's inbound. Yeah, I think once, once I also governments do, but companies or governments understand um, kind of what we can do. They're usually going towards us. We, we do really want to, uh, in particular, launch an initiative called Unreasonable Inclusion. Uh, looking at racial justice, and this is you know primarily looking here in the U.S. Um, because of you know what was sparked last year in terms of awareness um, has, as you know, been going on for 400 years in this country, um, and we think that the private sector has and needs to play a role. I am um, in I in looking at that challenge, and so that'd be looking at affordable. Um, housing, uh, you know, credit access and educational access and food access and so on. So are you looking for if, if there's anybody listening that's a large corporation that wants to really accelerate their DNI, they should reach out to you? Yeah, at a, at a systemic kind of societal level. Yes, um, we would we would love that. So that's it for our podcast today. I hope you enjoyed um, the two-parter with Daniel Epstein. We could have gone on forever. 
Um, I'm going to bring him back because I really would like to talk to some of the companies that they are funding. Um, Also, people ask me, hey, Carol, what do you do besides podcasts? Well, to move the thinking forward, uh, beyond our podcasts, uh, many of you know of our Cone research. I've done over 30 pieces of research over the years. Our most recent piece was done about a year ago, the B2B purpose paradox. And let me tell you, B2Bs are diving in deep to this. Um, And we also do the work. So we provide consulting to companies that want to discover their purpose. They want to evolve their purpose. They want to find a a really unique social purpose. It might be for an anniversary. It might be for a new cohort of recruits. So we just love doing the work, too. So um, we also give workshops and and best practices um, trainings. So if you need to uh, accelerate the knowledge of purpose in your organization, just uh, send us a note and we'll get right back to you. Carol at carolconeonpurpose.com. 